praise God for our prophet, our priest, and our king, our Lord Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us. And as we turn now to his word, turn to Hebrews, we're actually going to we're going to start in Hebrews 4.14 and read through 5.10. As we're diving into this section now of looking at Christ, our great high priest. Let's pay attention to the reading of God's holy word, Hebrews 4.14 through 5.10. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated, designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word, and as we come now uh, to the time of the preaching of your word, God, may you speak, may our ears be open to hear from you, may our hearts be changed by you, God. May we be more conformed to the image of our Savior, our great prophet, priest, and king, and may we know him and love him more, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've had a few weeks off from our Hebrews series, so the first thing that I want to do here is to reorient us a bit uh, to where we are and to look at where we are going. So the kind of 30,000 foot view of Hebrews in one simple phrase is what? Jesus is better. Thank you. Jesus is better. He's better than the Old Testament prophets. He is the superior revelation of God, as we saw in the first four, chapter, first four verses of chapter one. He's better than the angels, which we saw in chapter one and chapter two. 
He's better than Moses and Joshua, as we saw in chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4. The beginning in chapter 4, verse 14, where we started reading from today, this is where we were at four Sundays ago, we entered into this new section of Hebrews where Jesus' superiority to Aaron and to the Old Testament priests and the Old Testament priesthood is really the main focus from here all the way until the end of chapter 10. So we are going to be here for the next three months uh, looking at chapters 5 through 10. And if you're, if you're like, man, I'm going to get tired of hearing about priests and sacrifices, well, tough. <laughs> it's going to be good. Trust me. This is, a, this is a great section in Hebrews. It is going to feel a little bit repetitive at times, but uh, that's okay. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be good. So uh, remember, as we, as we kind of get into this, Hebrews is the only New Testament letter where Jesus is referred to as a priest. Um, Paul does have a couple references to him as, as a mediator, but there's nothing directly talking about Jesus as a priest anywhere else. Uh, so Hebrews is a really important uh, letter in the New Testament for us to understand who our Savior is and what he has done for us as our priests and what he continues to do. So again, really excited about diving into these next six chapters. Title of the message this morning, as you see there on your worship guide, is Priestly Perfection. Now, there are a lot of similarities with this passage in chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, which we looked at the first Sunday in November, which I titled The People's Perfect Propitiating Priest. So trying to stick with the alliteration a little bit here today, but uh, a little bit less of a mouth, mouthful. Uh, so priestly perfection. If you have the ESV Bible, you can look there at your headings and your Bible from 414 to 510. It's one section. The heading is Jesus, the great high priest. As we look at that, it's helpful uh, to have these divisions, but we also need to remember that these divisions are not inspired. These divisions were not in the original Greek manuscripts. In fact, neither were the paragraph divisions or the punctuation. The earliest Greek manuscripts, you can go on Google and type in earliest Greek manuscripts and it'll, there'll be some images there. There were not even spaces between the words. The letters were just all, they all just ran together. So it looks like one big block of, of letters. So it's kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, so anyways, this is this section here is not inspired. And I, I mentioned that because um, we need to make choices, right? As we preach through a book of the Bible, we need to make choices about how we divide things up. Um, as we said early on when we were kind of introducing Hebrews, uh, this was probably written as a sermon. Uh, it was meant to be read to a congregation. Some of us read it in our community groups. It took about 45 minutes to read. Um, but we're not going to, I'm not going to stand up here every week while we're in Hebrews and just read the whole letter of Hebrews, right? We, we break it up. We try to find the divisions that we think are the most helpful. Sometimes we just key, key in on a few verses like we did last time when we were in 4, 14 through 16. Uh, this all kind of flows together, but it was helpful uh, to look at that. And the reason we did that is because, remember, as we're going through Hebrews, there's kind of two different things going on. There's exhortation, and then there's instruction. And or kind of other, you can flip those. Instruction, then exhortation is usually how it goes. So there's first this teaching, right, about this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. Now this is what you have to do. Uh, like in, in Paul, in Ephesians, for example, 
Ephesians 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3 are almost all instruction, right? It's this is who God is, this is what he has done, and then chapters 4 through 6 are exhortation. Paul almost always writes in that way where he, he front loads the instruction and then he tells us what we're supposed to do. In Hebrews, it's always back and forth. There's, all of this, there's always this intermingling uh, between instruction and exhortation. So we looked at 4, 14 through 16. And in that, that's where there's these two great exhortations that we were given. The exhortations are first, uh, in verse 14, hold fast to our confession. Hold fast to what we believe about Jesus and what we confess about Jesus. Don't let go. And then the second one is in verse 16, that we are to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. So those are the two main exhortations in this section about Jesus as priest. Now, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 is going to tell us why we ought to do those things. So we need to remember, this is kind of what the focus is to do those things. And then uh, verses 5 through 10, or 5, 1 through 10 are going to tell us why. So if you're taking notes, the main idea for today, which ties us back to 4, 14 through 16, is this. And get ready for a couple of made up words. So our confession of Jesus is hold fastable and I actually typed that on my computer and if you put the dashes hold dash fast dash bowl you don't get a little red line so hey I guess it it works so our confession of Jesus is hold fastable and the throne of grace is draw nearable okay connecting us back to those exhortations, because two things, because Jesus is not like earthly priests and because Jesus is the perfect priest. So our confession of Jesus is hold fastable and the throne of grace is draw nearable because Jesus is not like earthly priests and Jesus is the perfect priest. In order to prove that from this passage, I want us to ask three questions, and I'll list them as we go along. So kind of our main sections are going to be broken apart by these questions. First question, what is a priest and what do priests do? The first thing that we must see is that a priest is a representative. Gerhardus Voss, that great Princeton theologian from mid uh, 1800s to the early 1900s, he explains in his work on Hebrews that a priest is one who brings near to God. He says his function differs from that of a prophet and that a prophet moves from God toward man, whereas the priest moves from man toward God. Thus, a priest is one who brings men near to God, who leads them into the presence of God. So a prophet, you can think about Moses, right? A prophet meets with God. A prophet goes away. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai uh, to receive the Ten Commandments. Uh, he would go then into the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp, right? He would go away from the people to meet one-on-one -on -one with God. And then he would come back to the people with a message from God. A priest does his work in the midst of the people. He does his work before the people in bringing the people to God. And the significance of this representation is seen in verse 1. 
says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So they are representatives in that they are chosen from among men. They are chosen to represent men. They are appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So that's the first thing we see about a priest. The second thing that we must see is that a priest is a human, right? They're chosen from among men. means that they are also human, right? They're one of us. And because he is a human like us, there are certain things that he can do, which is highlighted in verses 2 and 3. He can deal gently with ignorant with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. And because of this weakness, in verse 3, he must also offer up sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. This highlights the representative nature of his role, but it also highlights the relatability that he has with those whom he serves. As we think about this, uh, it's a bit challenging maybe to illustrate and apply this to our own lives today. Uh, We are not told to do anything or to believe anything specifically as it relates to these priests. Uh, We don't have earthly priests in that same way today. At least we don't believe in that, right? There's some traditions that do. But as we'll be seeing specifically in, in the following chapters, as it relates to this Old Testament priesthood, this Old Testament priesthood is obsolete. So are there any actual takeaways for us here? And I think when we think about these dynamics, it is helpful to think about our human relationships, especially as it relates to authority. It's hard for me not to read this. It's hard for me to read this and to not think about parenting, especially when I read verse two, talking about dealing gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Parents, I want to challenge you with this. Your children will often do things that could be considered ignorant and wayward. And how are you to deal with them? I think it's easy for us to think that we've arrived, right? Like, well, I've already learned all those lessons. Now you need to listen to me and pay attention to me, which they do. But is that how we deal with them? Or do we think that our life experience has somehow given us some element of of mastery over our own ignorance and waywardness? Do we deal gently with our children because we know that we ourselves are beset with weakness? This word here for beset, it means to be surrounded by. It means to actually like wear something. Uh, One translation that I think is really helpful says, that the high priest himself is clothed with weakness. It's a great picture, right? To think, uh, to be clothed with something, to put something on. And this is a great contrast, really, when we think about the high priest, we think about the elaborate clothing that the high priest wore as he entered into God's presence. And in contrast to that elaborate clothing, he's actually clothed with human weakness. I think that's fascinating. We'll discuss that a little more in a minute. So whether it's parents to your children, whether it's wives to husbands, employees to employers, whether we are the ones in authority or under authority, earthly rulers and citizens, are we relating 
as fellow clothed with weakness sinners who are in desperate need of the grace of God. I think we can also think about this in terms of the local church, where there is certainly a closer parallel uh, than there is to relationships in the home or in the workplace or in the government. There's a closer parallel as we think about church leadership and the work of the priests. While the pastors and elders today in the church are not just the New Testament equivalent of what priests were in the Old Testament, again, there is an element of overlap in calling and obligation. As I reflect on this, this is a very humbling thing for us as your pastors and elders. We need to be reminded that we are not in some separate class, right? We are not so set apart from you that we cannot relate to you. We are also clothed with weakness as fellow sinners, and we must seek to shepherd the flock under the guidance and the strength of the chief shepherd, not under our own strength. We have to deal with our own sin. We have to deal with our own rebellious hearts before the Lord before we can effectively help you deal with yours. And that is not always fun. Either one, dealing with our own or dealing with dealing with our own sin or dealing with your sin. But we have to be recognizing that we need to do that before the Lord first before we can attempt to help others do the same thing. And yet, despite our weaknesses that we share with the flock, our priestly role of bringing men and women to God, near to God and leading them into the presence of God must be recognized as a God-appointed and honorable role. Which brings us nicely to our next section as we ask our second question. What doesn't a priest do? Simply put, in verse 4, a priest does not take the honor of acting on behalf of men in relation to God for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So as your pastors and elders, we do not take this honor upon ourselves as in the same way that the high priests did not do that. Well, so let's take a moment to consider Aaron and his calling, and then we'll come back to this idea of the honor of the priesthood. Aaron is only mentioned three times in Hebrews. Uh, only two of them actually relate specifically to him as a priest. But the whole argument from here on out, all the way through chapter 10, is going to be that Jesus is superior to Aaron. Aaron being the representative of the whole Old Testament priesthood. This summer, as we went through our Prophet, Priest, and King series, we looked at the Old Testament priesthood. One of the messages was on Exodus chapter 28 and 29. It was on July 29th, if you're at all interested. If you weren't here and you want to go back and listen to it. Um, we looked at Exodus chapter 28, which is this very detailed description of the clothing that Aaron wore. Aaron and his sons wore as high priests. And one of the fascinating things in that chapter is that Aaron and his sons are totally passive. They don't actually do anything except get clothing put onto them. And then, uh, again, like, like I said before, that that is a, a great contrast, right? This elaborate clothing that they wear is this contrast with them actually humanly being clothed with weakness. So that's chapter 28. Then in chapter 29, in verses 1 through 9, again, they are the clothes are put on them. They're anointed with oil. They are, are ordained to the priesthood. 
And again, in all these things, they are totally passive. They don't do anything. And finally, in verse 10 of chapter 29, they finally get to the work of offering sacrifices. But most of what is going on, they are passive recipients of what God is doing in setting them apart and what God is calling them to. And then they, they finally get to the work. But most of the emphasis is on the honor that is bestowed upon them by God. Again, seen in their splendid attire, seen in the ceremonies that are setting them apart for their service. In fact, in the Old Testament, besides the king of Israel, the high priest was the most revered position in all of the Old Testament. It truly was a position of honor. And the author author of Hebrews here very importantly reminds us that these priests, they did not just waltz into the temple on their own authority and claim to act on behalf of God. Being a high priest was actually a very dangerous job. If you read through those accounts, especially on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, the high priest had a, a big robe on with bells tied to the, all the way around the bottom of it. And then they would tie a rope around his leg so that as he was walking around in the, inside the Holy of Holies and, and doing the work there, that the bells would constantly be ringing. And they knew if they stopped hearing those bells ringing, that he had dropped dead being in the presence of God and they could pull the rope and pull him out, right? So when you think about that, like the high priest did not take that honor upon himself, right? He didn't say like, oh yeah, I got this, right? Like I'm good. I can go, I can go in the presence of God. Like, no, he knew if he just walks in there, he's a dead man, right? If he does not, if he's not set apart and called by God. So this idea of taking that honor, there's a, there's a, a weight to that. There's a seriousness to that. So as we're focusing on the priesthood for the next few months, it's important to remember that the author of Hebrews, actually, he does not speak disparagingly about Aaron or the Old Testament priesthood as if God made some kind of mistake in calling Aaron and in the institution of the priesthood. This is not a mistake on God's part. The the reality is is that it was simply incomplete. Uh, There's a helpful way to think about this, and I I may come back to this later on as we get into uh, talking about the discussion between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant in chapters 8 through 10. But it's this issue of continuity versus discontinuity. This is something that we talk about a lot with covenant theology. Um, But what is what is kind of continuous? What continues from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant? And then what is what is discontinuous? What what changes? And a really helpful kind of illustration for that is the idea of a blueprint, comparing a blueprint and a house. And this comes from uh, some lectures from one of our RTS professors, really helpful. Um, basically, just think about what, what the difference is in terms of continuity and discontinuity b- between the blueprints of a house and the house itself. You're not going to take the blueprints of a house and walk outside on a rainy day and hold them over your head and say, oh, these blueprints are going to keep me dry when it's raining, right? That would be ridiculous. And you're not going to walk outside today when it's like minus 15 or whatever it is right now. And you're not going to wrap those blueprints around you and say, oh, these these blueprints are going to keep me really warm. No, the house is going to keep you dry, right? And the house is going to keep you warm. The blueprints simply point to the final goal, right? Similarly, if you had those blueprints before your house was built and you go and you sit on your, on your property, like maybe 50 feet away from the, where the house is going to be, and you, you look at the blueprints and you look up and you imagine the house, like there's an excitement, there's an anticipation, right, when the, when the house is finally built. But when the house comes, you're not going to go back and sit in the yard and look at the blueprints and say, 
Man, life was so great when I was just out here with these blueprints and there was no house, right? That would be totally ridiculous. The blueprints were pointing forward to the ultimate goal that you now get to live in. The house was the final goal. So maybe you'll go and you'll frame the blueprints, right? Inside the house. Maybe you might frame them. I don't know if anybody's ever done this, but you might frame your blueprints. Zach would know. You might frame your blueprints and put them in your house and, and there's that, that continuity, right? People come over and you say, see, this is what, this is what our dream in our mind was, right? And now here it is, you're, you're in it, right? That's continuity. But the discontinuity would be going and sitting in the yard and saying, oh, I wish I could go back to, to just, just having the blueprints and not the house, okay? So it's kind of a helpful way to think about the priesthood and the, and the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant, um, those, they were always pointing forward to something else. So the whole point of the Old Testament priesthood was to point forward to Christ as the great high priest, right? It was, an, it was an incomplete work that was pointing forward to something greater. But in and of itself, right, the blueprints aren't bad. The blueprints of the house aren't bad. They're just not the full thing. So the Old Testament priesthood in and of itself wasn't bad. God, God instituted it. It was just not complete, and it was pointing forward to something else. So thinking about that, specifically thinking about what the blueprint can't do, right, and the issue of discontinuity, we get some help in answering our final question. Our final question is, why is Jesus the perfect priest? We see this in verses 5 through 10. Now, if we have any, uh, like, grammar and English nerds in here, uh, you would love this one. Verses 5 through 10 is one sentence in the Greek. And if you love sentence diagramming, uh, you would love this one. This is like probably one of the most complicated sentences I've ever seen. Uh, all five of these verses are like, and it's, just, it's super convoluted. Uh, I'm not going to get into all that and bore you with that. If you want to see it, um, I think I might have it in my office so I can show you later. Um, but it's, it's crazy. There's just all these, all these different parts and all these connections. But it's all making one big point. It is that Jesus is unique and that he is superior to the earthly priest. So um, as confusing as it might be in, in some ways, I don't want us to get bogged down in that. Uh, I want us to see that it's the whole thing is pointing to the uniqueness and the superiority of Jesus to earthly priests. So it starts off with connecting us back to verse four, that no earthly priest from Aaron on down, no, none of them took the honor of being priest for himself. Verse five, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. Jesus is exalted by God because he is the eternal son of God and he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which we see there in those quotes in verse five and six. Now, if you came here dying to hear about Melchizedek, Sorry to disappoint you. We're not going to get into that today, but the first three weeks in February, we are going to, we're going to take three weeks to go through Hebrews chapter seven. So you're going to get to hear all about Melchizedek uh, in those three weeks. So there's that for you. Uh, but we saw, so we saw in chapter four fourteen how Jesus sonship and his priesthood were connected. Look at verse four, chapter four, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. So the author is tying together his priesthood and his sonship. Now we see here 
with two very important Old Testament references here in verses 5 and 6. The first one is in Psalm is from Psalm 2 verse 7. It says you are my son today I have begotten you. In the Nicene Creed we affirm that Jesus is begotten from the Father before all ages, meaning that he is eternal, he is not created. And the context of Psalm 2 is God's anointed king. So there's this connection between kingship and sonship. Uh, Psalm 10, verse 4, which is quoted here in verse 6, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This comes from another kingly psalm. Psalm 110 is also a kingly psalm as well as Psalm 2. So our author here is very explicitly tying together the kingly and the priestly offices of Christ. He's pointing out that he is the one, Christ is the one whom God has exalted. We saw this connection in chapter 1, verse 3, where it says that after Jesus made purification for sins as our priest, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high as king, right? So king and priest tied together. Chapter 2, verse 9, it's, it says that we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, that's kingly language, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Again, that's priestly language there. And these words here for glory and honor that, that are in chapter 2, verse 9, they're the same words that are used here in chapter 5, where it says Jesus uh, did not take, or the, no one takes this honor for himself. And then in verse 5, where it says Christ did not exalt himself or glorify. It's the same word. The, the word for glory, glorify and exalt are the same words. Uh, just different, there's different English words here. Um, so Jesus did not take that honor upon himself. He did not glorify himself, but as the son of God, who is both king and priest, God honored him and God exalted him. So you see the contrast is being made between the earthly priest and the heavenly priest, right? The son of God, the king, the, the great high priest, he did not glorify himself, but God honored and glorified him. And this is a massive argument in light of the overall flow of the letter, both for the original recipients and for us. Again, remember, we don't know the exact situation that was going on for them. We don't know uh, what they were facing in this church. But it's clear that, as we're going to see coming up soon in these challenging uh, passages, these warning passages, next week and then uh, the week after that in chapter, rest of chapter 5 and in chapter 6, there was some temptation that they were facing to abandon the Christian faith and to revert back to reliance upon the sacrificial system. There was something that they were being told, by, whether it was by a certain group of people or whether it was from the outside or maybe it was internally, right? There was some, there was some teaching, there was some influence that was telling them to go back to reliance upon the sacrificial system, to go back to reliance upon these earthly priests as mediators between them and God. And our author is telling us here, don't do it. Don't go back to the old way of doing things. Christ is infinitely superior. Don't rely on yourselves and don't rely upon others to do what only Christ can do. 
Brothers and sisters, if we think this warning was only for those who actually had this earthly sacrificial system to fall back on, we are gravely mistaken. The world and the flesh and the devil are constantly shouting to us, go back, right? It's so much easier to do it another way. Following Jesus is just too hard. Just throw in the towel, cash in your chips, and walk away, right? Game over. That's the constant bombardment that we get to which we must respond, no, there is no other way. There is no better way than Jesus. Yes, it is hard. Being a Christian was not easy then, and it's still not easy now. But we must take our eyes off our own circumstances. We must take our eyes off our own unique challenges, whether individually or collectively, and we must put them on Jesus. That's what this whole section is aimed at. Look at Jesus. He is the perfect priest. He is the sinless son of God who took on flesh and who fought and won the battles that the earthly priests were unable to win because of their weaknesses. We see in verse 7 and following what Jesus did. He prayed and he cried out to his father and his prayers were heard. Back to that crazy sentence diagram that I was talking about. The two main verbs in this whole section don't come until verses 8 and 9. And both of them, I think as we read them, cause us to raise our eyebrows a little bit at first sight, and both of them need a little bit of explanation. The first one is in verse 8. The first main verb is that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, when we think about learning obedience, normally we think about a child, right, who needs to be disciplined by their parents, who needs to mess up a few times and learn like, oh, that's not the way to do it. This is the way to do it. That's not what's going on here with Jesus. Jesus is not like an earthly child who sinned and who went astray and needed to be corrected. It's referring to Jesus' experience of perfect obedience to God's law. Jesus lived the perfect life in our place that no earthly representative could live. And he did it in the face of unspeakable suffering. Jesus was never not fully obedient to God. So when we, say, when we say he learned obedience, it doesn't mean he, at one point he didn't know obedience, right? But it was necessary that he lived and that he suffered and that he experienced the things that we do so that he could be our perfect representative. And going beyond that, he did what we could ultimately not do. That is going to the cross and fully paying the penalty for our sins. That was the fullest expression of his obedience to the Father. The second main verb then is in verse 9, where it says he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, which is preceded by the clause, and being made perfect. So this phrase, being made perfect, must be understood similarly to the phrase, learning obedience. Again, there was not a time when Jesus was not perfect. The mention of perfection here and becoming the source of eternal salvation are pointing to his priesthood. There's a sense of completing something that wasn't complete before. 
These are things that had to be accomplished, that only Jesus could accomplish. These are things that no earthly priest could do because of their weaknesses. So Jesus suffered and he obeyed the Father perfectly as our perfect priestly representative. He is the source of our salvation. And this phrase here, to all who obey him, is not meant to be a condition for our salvation. This isn't talking about salvation by works. This isn't saying, well, if you obey him enough, then one day perhaps you will be saved. It's actually meant to be a source of assurance for us. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience to Jesus does not scare us away, but it should draw us near to him. Obedience to Jesus is meant to be a source of encouragement and assurance for the Christian. As we continue on in Hebrews, we are going to see that assurance is a major theme. It's especially important as we dive into some of these tough warning passages coming up these next couple of weeks, where we are going to see the issue of apostasy or turning away from the faith. We're going to see a very real connection between obedience to Christ and assurance of our salvation. Again, this is not salvation by works. We do not believe in that. We believe that we are saved by grace through faith alone. But we do believe that we are to bear fruit and we are to prove to the watching world by our obedience to Christ that we belong to him. We have an opportunity to do that now as we come to this table. Paul says that whenever we, in 1 Corinthians 11, whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim his death until he comes, right? Say this often. This is where we should view this as an evangelistic event, right? This is a proclamation to the world. This is, a, this is an obedience as Christians that we partake, right? That we, we come and we take this meal and we say, yes, Jesus is better, right? Jesus is the only source of salvation for us, and we trust in him. So our coming to this table is part of our obedience in the Christian life. Not, not a dutiful thing that we earn our salvation, but, but we say that this is, this is the fruit of our life in Christ, right? This is the fruit of the grace of God, that we obey him by coming to this table, by declaring to the world that our, our allegiance is to Jesus and to Jesus alone. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 6. As we remind you here who this table is for, it is not just for those who are members of Livingstone Church. It's not just for those who are Presbyterian. It's for anyone who has trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. We ask that you'd be someone who is in good standing in a gospel preaching church as well. As we read through this section here, we're going to be looking at Romans 6, verses 15 to 23. I want you to examine your life as you read through this. I want you to think about the issue of obedience to Christ. Think about the issue of, of where you're at with him by his grace. And consider where you're at as we read through this. Romans 6, starting in verse 15. 
Um, just before this, in verse 14, Paul says, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Okay, this is a reminder that we are under grace. And then he asks the question, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The free gift of God that is to be grabbed onto by grace because we have been set free from sin, as it says in verse 18, and we have become slaves to righteousness. We are slaves to God. We are slaves to righteousness who are to obey him. And it should be a joy to obey him. So we kind of bring this full circle with the passage in Hebrews. We need to hold fast to our confession. We need to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. And part of doing that is being obedient and coming to this table, coming and eating and drinking, communing with your risen Savior, communing with your brothers and sisters in Christ and declaring to the world that Jesus is better.